it's times like this I wish I had a really cool kind of Mark Maron intro where you come in and say, you know, what the fuck Nicks, what the fuck bots, what the fuck are this Delix, all of the stuff that he does really cool, but I don't. All I have is a simple message. The Tortoise Shack, the Echo Chamber, Reboot Republic, all of the podcasts and the platform are ad-free, sponsor-free, rely totally on you, listeners, to keep these mics on and conversations happening. We need your support. You're not going to hear an advert from a bank. You're not going to hear me talk about what mattress I slept on last night. And you're certainly not going to hear me telling you how you should wash your balls, lads. I'm sick of people telling lads how to wash their balls. What the fuck is going on? But what you are going to hear until the one day we actually become viable is me ask you for your support. There are tens of thousands of people listening to these podcasts every week. We need some of you to put your hands in your pockets, pay it forward, and keep it free and accessible for everyone. The link is right there in the podcast you're listening to now. It says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. And as I've said before, think of it as the easiest bit of activism you can do on a monthly basis. That six, seven quid you throw us helps us create six, seven euros worth of space that we can carve out to have the conversations that you want to listen to, because clearly thousands of you do. So whatever support you can, please chip in. Patreon.com forward slash tortoise Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Thanks for liking and sharing. We'd love you to join the community we're trying to build. But I'm done now, and I'm going to let you get to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and Martin, we are back having a conversation about uh, the economy, stupid. We've had a lot of these recently in terms of um, the economic model, how it has failed to serve society. And it's it's funny, it's almost even economists who we would be say maybe are of the orthodoxy have almost have, have all come on board on on to some degree, you know, knowing that there's that following COVID that there's we need a bigger state. But now we're getting to budget season and there's a lot of irresponsible kite flying going on already. And it's like, you know, it's like the Brown Thomas Christmas shop. Budget season starts earlier every year. Um, we're, 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 you know, we're having promises of tax cuts and helping to squeeze middle. Uh, and yet we, we what we really need is, is more services. I, I know you, Martin, your own experiences of the health service know, you know that we need more uh, and readily available services. Yeah, we're in end stage. I mean, let's be real honest. We're in end stage capitalism. Everything they do is just making it worse. There's nothing they're doing is making it better. And we're all going to die because of climate change, Tony. And so that's it. Capitalism isn't fit for the job. Well, we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll get into it. Anyway, we're delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time in 2023 by the economic and social analyst with Social Justice Ireland, Colette Bennett. Colette, how are you keeping? I'm wonderful. Well, thank you very much. The sun is shining. How bad can I be? How are you yeah. guys? We're good. We're good. We're, we're we're trying to stay busy here. But I suppose a lot of reports coming out recently and a lot of things that you've been talking about for, for, uh, for the longest of times. But it's showing that despite these headline figures of we're going to have a budget surplus that would make Jeff Bezos blush, we're still seeing the, the rise in, in socioeconomic deprivation. We're still seeing a rise in energy poverty. And we're still seeing, actually, even income inequality has, has, has been a, is still much more problematic here than it would be, considering how brilliant our GDP is, Colette. Give us your overview before we get into some of the minutiae. Well, obviously, GDP is nonsense. Um, it's an absolute work of fiction. And I think at this point, you know, even publishing on it and publishing those kind of productivity statistics is just it, like it's it's fairy tale. So and everybody knows it's fairy tale, particularly in an Irish context. I mean, when we see that our economy has grown by twelve point two percentage points, and it's it's way ahead of all other European countries. Like it's 
we know that that's a work of fiction. That said, we do have bumper government surpluses to to look forward to um, in the next couple of years. So we're looking at 10 billion this year, 15 billion or 16 billion next year, 65 billion overall. Um, and that's really kind of brought the discussion to the fore around the budget. Now, funnily enough, you know, when we say that the budget starts every year, I am one of those nerds that's like, well, actually, the budget starts in January. Um, and the reason the budget starts in January is because we have to prep for the stability program update. So that's only in draft in April. European legislation says we have to have that by then. So the budget discussions are already starting around that time before that's that's published. So when that's being kind of put together, that's when we start hearing it. As soon as that, they come out and they tell us what the, the kind of general fiscal position is, then we get the real kind of packages like we're here and, you know, this week and last week around um, we're going to start, you know, introducing lower tax rates. We're going to, you know, irrespective of what everybody is saying uh, that has had any kind of in-depth look at what we should be doing around taxes, we're going to give the money away. We're back to kind of Charlie McCready era stuff. Is it, can um, I just, I'm going to make a comment. And it's funny that we have like we have three Finnegal ministers and TDs writing in the Irish Independent, going on a solo run because we know there's now been problems between Finnegal and Finnegal over this. But going on a solo, three of them writing in the same day in the same newspaper saying, "Oh, at least a thousand quid back to the old squeeze middle and tax breaks." And I put it to people all the time that when you know someone goes on and says, "I believe in the right to housing," they say that's populism. <laughs> well, actually, no. Real populism is three is three TDs from one party writing the same national newspaper on the same day, promising tax breaks when when we need better services. So, anyway, rant over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rant away! I mean, I had a couple of interviews on it uh, because it was such a, an unusual thing to do. Uh, we got a few media calls on it, kind of saying, "Well, you know, would you like to come and talk about what you think about it?" And I can surely I would. Um, and it's, I suppose, what really strikes me about it, first of all. You know, this narrative of we're putting money back in people's pockets and we're not trying to take money off you. So it's it's setting up taxation as as theft. You know, it's setting up this kind of thing of small government, low taxes, privatization stuff, which we know has been fairly clearly kind of government policy, certainly for the last 15 years. But it's very hard to unravel that narrative then if that big boom busts. And you have to increase taxes, you know, and, and that's why we see things like austerity policies, because you can't roll back on the thing that says our whole round on taxation is it should be low. And now actually we need a bit more of it because we can't fund the things we need to fund. And that's when you start to see things like a reduction in public services, reduction in core social welfare, all of that. We can't afford that anymore because we've underfunded to such a degree that if if we lose, you know, sufficient taxation, if we stop collecting sufficient taxation to, to keep things going, we're going to be in serious trouble because there's nothing left to cut. Um, so I think that's quite an interesting narrative and a, a kind of dangerous political narrative even there was, um, there was a, to I, do I did, that. I did read a very good line and it's actually stuck with me and I'm going to steal it. And it was from Social Justice Ireland. And it was that if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I thought that was an excellent line and it really sums up what goes on in Ireland when we talk about, you know, having uh, uh, what are they what are the phrases they use uh, stakeholders at the table <laughs> when they use that phrase having stakeholders. What they mean is the ones we don't have at the table 
are not stakeholders. And it is it is a, um, a boxing off society. Every issue, we're all stakeholders in every issue. There is no specific stakeholder. We're all citizens of this country. We're all stakeholders. But that was a brilliant line from Social Justice Ireland. And as you've said, even though we have this gargantuan amount of money, what they're actually talking about is giving it to those who have a voice at the table and not those who don't. Yeah, it's really frustrating. And that line was is born out of sheer frustration because we have been trying and trying and trying to get social dialogue back up and running. We are seeing a cost of living crisis. We're seeing an energy security crisis. I, you know, we, we'll talk fuel poverty, I'm sure. We've seen in the last year an increase in poverty. And yet the only people that are being talked to are the trade unions and the employers groups. There is no environmental group at that table. There's no community and voluntary group at that table. And yet when we see increases in migration coming in, so say, for example, what happened in Ukraine and the the increase and that the, I suppose because of the temporary protection directive, the increase of supports that were necessary it was the community and voluntary sector that were being called on to provide those report or its supports. Same when COVID hit, the community call was all the community and voluntary sector organisations, all the community level organisations being called upon to stump up. And yet, when it comes to policy decisions and strategy for actually dealing with this at a, a more kind of a national level and where the funding goes, community and voluntary sector, environmental sector are nowhere to be seen. That's a really interesting way of framing it because I spoke to uh, Lorraine from the Muslim Sisters of Era on this yesterday and she was very clear on, on you know, the, the challenges that, that the, the immigration has, uh, the up the rise in immigration has, has beset their, themselves, like, you know, going from 500 people at a super run to 700 people at a super run, trying to manage these things, knowing that the communities that are being impacted most have already been socioeconomically deprived for, for years. I know it's something that... Uh, you know, it's not a simplistic thing of of saying that you know that 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 this is just that, that that there aren't legitimate concerns. I know it's something that, like, it's hard to. I I get in trouble, and Martin, you know, this is probably the fourth time I've said this to you, but I've said it so often now, Colette. I I know that many people who've protested in saying an example in Ballymun and that some of them it, it, people are saying, oh, there these a lot of people are filled with hate. I, I, I often think if you scratch at it enough, it's actually a lot of love. It might be a love of community, a love of a sibling or, or a son or daughter who's fighting for resources that are scarce enough already as it is. And that and they feel um disenfranchised. And I'm sure when we talk about the inequalities that are that 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 you you report on, that you 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 research and you talk, look at, a lot of that shows w- w- why it's actually it suits kind of the state's narrative, the simplistic narrative to say, you know, th- this is this is happening there and these are just, this is um, bad faith actors and, and far right agitators rather than admit to the fact that you've maybe deprived these areas for decades. Yeah, I mean, that whole narrative drives me insane. And I think I was particularly clued into it when it was happening around the time of the protests in Finglas and Ballymun and East mm. Wall. Obviously, being from Finglas, I was kind of clued into it and the narrative around people from those areas. I'm people from those areas. They're not my thoughts. But what came out of it was the the minister came out and said in a national newspaper, there's just no point in consulting with some people. What does that mean? Like, OK, fine. On a very technical point, there will be some people who will never listen to you. They just are filled with hatred. They're filled with bile. They want the violence. And there's, there's going to be no rational discussion with that. 
But for the vast majority of people who are in the areas that we're talking about, what their concerns were and should have been addressed was if you bring in more people, whether that's from building an apartment block and you're going to see another thousand people moving in or it's because of a migration policy, what happens with the available resources? Are you matching resources with the with the additional people coming in or does everybody get a smaller slice? And when you talk about smaller slices, we're talking about areas that have very small slices to begin with. We're not hearing from, you know, we're not hearing from protests in other areas in Dublin, for example, who have had protests and they have shut down migration centres. But we're not hearing about those type of people from there. We're hearing it from more working class areas, more disadvantaged areas, uh, rural areas, such for example, in Kerry and in Clare as well. But these are communities that had legitimate concerns about resources. If that was a planning application, you could say, OK, I'm raising an objection. Now we'd all be called NIMBYs, but I'm raising an objection to the planning on the basis that I want to see where the amenities are. Where is the increase in healthcare? Where is the increase in the schools? Where is the increase in public transport? All of that. You're, you don't get that when two, it's an international protection decision. Two quick, two quick points that are relevant. Um, one, too much gone to the idea now we need more guards, now we need more maybe community development officers and we need all of these other supports. And then the other really quick point I want to say is, you know, you, you kept saying the word resources. It's interesting that uh, Josepha Madigan was the, was the minister who famously put out the anti-traveller uh, pamphlet that said, uh, don't give them the land to travellers because it was a waste of valuable resources and managed to get promoted off the back of it. Sorry, Martin. Yeah, I, I see, I'm, I'm with you to a large degree, Colette, and I'm with you to a large degree. And I, I like to look at it, we say, through the prism of GPs. Are there enough GPs in an area to cope with the, the, the volume of people that live there? We already know before you ever put one other person into a community, the answer is no. And the answer is no right across the country. There is a shortage of GPs. So that now that's reflected in all services. I'm just using GPs as, as the, the fulcrum, but that's in all services. No, the services don't exist. You're dead right. There's a different yeah. use of language when it comes to the more affluent areas. There's a different way of expressing racism. And in fact, we have seen it in government. Tony, we've seen our own Taoiseach do this, be quite racist in what he says, in saying that, you know, Ukrainian... Dif- uh, yeah, we treat, of course, are, are of course we different. treat them differently. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and- so he's setting up the fall guys. And of course the fall guys are the other people coming into this country. And it's not the Ukrainians that have been protested against. It's the non-white people who are being protested against. Okay, so on one side, yeah, Colette, I see your side of the coin. I see that it is two different narratives and it's only the working class community that's been demonized by this. And I absolutely see that. But let's talk specifics. We say somewhere like Turnip and Cottages, which was built in the 30s and was put on the outer edge of of the livable city at that stage. It was in the middle of nowhere because nobody wanted them, these council houses in, it was NIMBYism back then in the 1930s. So there was two and three families living to those cottages in Turnipin up until the 60s without any indoor plumbing. And it was a huge issue in the Doyle at the time. They were completely neglected out there and nobody gave a damn. But there was con- lots of conversations over a period of 20 years about putting indoor plumbing. 
So what changed in Turnip and Cottage? Why is Turnip and Cottage is now turning around to, to people and saying, no, we don't want you here? It's because they sold off the private, uh, the, the public stock and made it private. And those corporation houses, those council houses in Turnipen are worth a huge amount of money now, a massive amount of money. But they were the worst of the worst back in the 1930s, the isolated in the 60s, the isolated, the completely neglected community. And for that community now, because it has been privatized, to somehow turn around and say to other people, no, we don't want you in our community. And I can tell you for a fact, Glad, because I know the community well, the people standing on those protests are not from the area, without a doubt. And I can tell you that because I know it in and out. So I see both sides. But I, oh, also, no, I mean, I, 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 I totally also guess see that, that, you know, the, the, the driver behind this is property values, nimbyism, I don't want in my area. And that's universal, whether you're coming from working class area or whether you're from Fox Rock. No, I, I take your point there, Martin. And yes, I mean, we could have a, a whole different podcast on, you know, the history of social housing and tenant purchase and what that, I suppose, the residual social housing and social housing tenants that were left, it became synonymous with the poorest of the poor rather than being what used to be kind of working people's housing. Um, but it's, it's to me, it's been given a foothold. So if you underinvest in, in an area and you, and like GPs are a prime example, and I have my own horror stories um, of that. But if you underinvest in an area for so long and then you put in a policy that puts in a, a, a certain amount of people, irrespective of whether it's because yeah. you're building homes or whether it's, you know, a, a migration issue. And then you don't address the concerns of of residents. You don't just come and have a conversation, have a town hall conversation, get the local authority involved, you know, answer the question of, are there going to be additional GPs? Are, is there going to be an additional bus service running? You know, answer those questions. If you don't do that, if you ignore that, then you build up that kind of anger and that frustration. And then that lends itself to people helicoptering in. And I absolutely agree. You know, it's it's not all coming organically out of communities. There are people who are traveling for this and you you let them then take over that narrative. You're, you've created that space. But, oh, you've you've created the pressure zone and then you're allowing the narrative but, to be but taken I, away. I think you're both. I don't disagree with much of what both of you have said, but I think one thing I do disagree with you, Martin, saying that it's down to property interests. A lot of it in these communities is down to poverty is the driver. You know, it's only so, so, when you're sitting in a corporation house that's worth upwards. Of no, no, no. I'm talking. Thousands. You're talking. You're picking on one specific protest. This has happened across. I'm talking about communities like the inner city that have had legitimate issues for decades. I mean, there are gyms in the inner city you can't join unless you work for a certain multinational. That's right. That's okay. 100% right. We, yeah. There's, 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 like, don't want to be so dramatic about it, but often people refer to socioeconomic apartheid. This is the kind of idea where, whereby, you know, we'll only deal with people above a, cer a certain income level or associated with, with the Google Docs, for example. And that, and they are in communities that we all knew growing up were working class communities and they've been bastardized and ruined. And, and if you, if you kick people for year after year after year and then you, and you deprive them and then there's no, you know, there's no social mobility, there's no resources. And then 
we have on the other side the government lecturing them, which is what's happened. There's a lot of, you know, um, you're only doing this because you're not educated. You're doing this because you're stupid. You're doing <laughs> this. Is but we know this. You know, no, I, I actually I put my fist in my mouth yeah, because I, I, that exactly. thing of you're only doing it because you're ed- you're not educated. These poor people are too dumb I, to realize what they're doing. And it's like, oh my god. They're some of the smartest, like, again, yeah. you know, I, I, I'm not going to include myself in this, but I'll include my friends. Really clever, smart people, highly educated people. That's not what this is. It isn't about education. It's about what people have experienced over decades. And in some cases, intergenerational poverty. Yeah. can we? And can that's we... not to say, and I really need to make this very clear for anybody who wants to come at me on social media around uh, Ireland first and whatever. That's not what I'm saying. I don't agree with that. That is abhorrent and absolutely hateful. Ireland is not full. We have plenty of, I'm going to use the word again, resources to actually look at everybody and to engage with everybody if we forecast it for it right and we plan for it properly. What I'm saying is if you don't address underlying issues, you create more. You can make, create the base for more. Hmm. I agree. Okay, look, we we better move on and talk a little bit about the actual the, the, the real struggles that people are experiencing in this economy with in terms of energy poverty and, uh, you know, people choosing between heating their homes for a couple of days a week rather than uh, five days a week, seven days a week, as, as, we, as people would hope to. There's so many decisions coming out in report after report showing how people have struggled through 2022 and how we are going to be facing into the same sort of situation come the the next autumn and winter. I mean, we just said it's lovely and warm at the moment, but it's not going to be lovely and warm forever. We live in Ireland. Colette, how bad is it now? Uh, and how are how are Social Justice Ireland sort of feeling as we head in towards the, uh, you know, submissions for the budgets? Yeah, so a couple of things, I suppose. The energy poverty thing is one that we... We talk about internally in Social Justice Ireland in terms of trying to get our heads around why it's taking such a foothold um, compared to just poverty, because it's all out of the same thing. You know, we, we talk about food poverty. We talk about energy poverty. Someone was talking to me recently about hygiene poverty. We've talked about period poverty, you know, but actually, ultimately, it's about making choices that you shouldn't have to make because your income is too low. It's an it's an, an entire thing about income adequacy. So we have people who, to, in order to put food on the table, Sorry, well, yeah, trying. Something went wrong with your mic there for a second, so it's fine now. Sorry, um, but because people are trying to keep food on the table, or they're trying to keep a roof over their head, or you know they're they're feeding their kids rather than themselves, um, they're making choices not to heat the home. They're or they're making choices to heat the home some days, but that means a reduction in the the cost of the groceries. You know, that that's a there there are those choices that people are making. If you're on two hundred and twenty quid a week and you're trying to figure out, you know, what do you do with that? You need your transport, you need your accommodation, you need your food, you need your heat, you need your clothes, you know, you like we used to say when I worked in Maz, you need your ten euro a month for savings and contingencies. And like that used to cause eruptions um to try and get that into people's budgets and, and financial statements when you're you were advocating with banks. But that's what you're trying to do out of not enough money. And what we saw in the last budget, we looked, and we weren't the only ones, almost every organisation in the sector looked for at least €20 a week of an increase to core social welfare. What was given was €12. So immediately, people who were dependent on core social welfare were €8 worse off. Now what's being talked about out there is, you know, there might be a tenner for pensions, a tenner a week for pensions. 
That's insulting. That is so grossly insulting. We've gone from Fiverr Friday. It's barely what you didn't give last year. Yeah, it's 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 the old Fiverr Friday trick, except this time it's going to be a tenor Friday, tenor Tuesday, or something like that. Is what they've done. But but no, no, I'm, I'm really serious. But, but it's important. To, can I can I make one quick point? Back to Portugal when they were doing their reassessments on. Um, the you know the likes of their their uh, welfare rates or their social welfare and their, their their social transfers that they were doing. I think they 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 decided to go with. They were saying that if inflation was running at eight, they would put it between eight and twelve percent rise. And again, I want to. It's very clear. Ireland's economy is doing much better than Portugal's, but Portugal's actually uh, is doing not too bad at all. I think the second or third fastest growing in in the EU. But their inequality margins are, are actually, yeah, the inequalities within their society are shrinking. So, like, whereas know, ours have increased. Exactly. And Imagine, increased in the most recent silk as well. Like that's right. And, and data about income. You mentioned why did the energy, why has energy caught hold with people? Now, I can tell you from, from being a poor person, I am a poor person and I say it all the time, I am. I went, not last year, the, the winter before, without a gas boiler. Um because I couldn't afford to get the gas boiler fixed. And it was that simple. I went to it for an entire winter without a gas boiler. So I was already on the back foot before the, the energy crisis hit uh, with energy bills. I was already on the back foot. And that's the problem with this. They talk an energy crisis. It's been a crisis for people who are struggling for donkey's years. Only because the it hurts the middle class, it becomes a crisis. And that's why you're seeing it. It's because it's universal. It was the same as the water charges. When a bill is universal and hits the poorest and the and and the wealthiest, then it becomes a problem. When it's only just the poorest, it's not a crisis. As we said earlier, if you're not at the table, you're the menu, and that's the, yeah. that is what happens. And I think you're right. And I think it's also it's politically easier from a policy perspective to silo. So. If you've got an energy crisis, well, we might we'll fiddle about with the thresholds on uh, the fuel allowance and we might add another fiber to that or extend it by a couple of weeks. And sure, isn't that dealt with then rather than actually looking at, well, what is causing poverty? And if you really want to open that kind of worms, you're talking all policy areas and you need to then have a proper, real integrated debate rather than these kind of silos of, well, that's your department, not my department. If it's not in my department, it will very quickly become my department. So if if you don't address poverty in social in the, the Department of Social Welfare, it's going to become housing's problem. It's going to become education's problem. It's also going to become health's problem. Yep. Then it's everybody's problem. So rather than having these kind of silos of, well, it's not in my budget line, why don't we actually look at the, it- the budget as a whole and what's actually needed to address poverty as opposed to, well, if we give an extra five around the fuel events, isn't that the job done? Well, we live in this situation where we, we say social transfers do the heavy lifting. Okay, this is what this is the line, and it's they and do. It, no, I get that. Yeah, yeah but, but no, but they push it at us, and no one talks about the actual the 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 cost to society of someone knowing that they need that children's allowance just to actually put the next meal on the table. They don't talk about that charge. Um, and I, I know Martin, you probably won't agree with me, but I think it's awful uh, disappointing in a one way that Nessa Hurrigan has been moved off the committees that she was involved in because she was trying to work in these well-being indexes, which might have been a step forward from you know the idea of the social transfers doing the lifting and the silk index. And because it's all very imperfect, as we know, um, Colette, though, I want to come back to the the idea then of saying how you give 
how you could make it every department's problem because we did this with climate action we said every every department now has their their climate budgets and we made it we made it law it's not working it's not actually uh, they're not delivering many of them i think pascal dunnu even refused to bloody appear at a, at a committee recently where he put, basically said jog on but the idea that we can do it for that and we and we can't actually then you know embed it to go back to what, what aiden regan said to us a couple of months ago we have a re, we we're obsessed with this redistribution model and we need a pre-distribution model um, yeah, I mean, we we have you mentioned a couple of them there. We have these frameworks. We we had the well-being framework. It came out around budget twenty twenty, I think, um, or maybe it was budget twenty one. Uh, the the first kind of consultation on it. They produced the eleven domains, which were very closely aligned to the OECD well-being indicators. You know, they've produced all of these statistics. There's a micro hub on the CSO, I and mean, if you look at the dashboard that was produced. We look like we are doing the job. Uh, so if you look at the dashboard, we're green on health. Green means go. Everything is fine. We're green on health. We're green on housing. Uh, we're green on income. Like, what? So we had a look at this last year for our conference. And we kind of like, well, if I was looking at this and I was looking at the, the a different set of statistics, I might look at some, you know, I might end up with some different colours on those indicators. Or, or if you just went outside your front door and looked around but, your, but your, your... Very your... much, do you know, do you not remember when uh, uh, Joan, Joan, uh, I forget this phrase, it's important. Joan anyway. And and Enda Kenny gave themselves a score out of 10 for how they were, how they were, you know, what they were. And they scored themselves nine out of 10 in the middle of the time when they'd literally just eviscerated an entire country with austerity and they gave it themselves a nine. That sounds extremely like that, Glenn. Oh, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. But what I found quite interesting about how amazing it was, was usually if that was real, if government actually really thought that that was real, that would be front and center of media. It would be it would have been published. There would be hard copies given out. You know, that was sent around in an email. I was on one of the working groups on that well-being, those domains. I didn't even get the email. It was sent to me by somebody else. Like it was done so under the radar. You couldn't possibly stand over it. Uh, It was talked about NED last year. So National Economic Dialogue only in reference to the environment, because obviously that's red because there isn't an indicator in the world that will tell you that Ireland is doing anything other than terrible. So but so we have a framework, right? You know, uh, taking the good out of it, we do have a framework, a bag of words on what well-being should look like if we did it properly. We have the SDGs, which is also a policy framework for doing this stuff properly. What we tend to do with it, unfortunately, is create the policies in the same way as we always have, and then give them a nice colour, match them up with the colours on the SDGs, match them up with the well-being indicators, and then publish that as being job done, rather than actually looking at the framework and saying, what policies do we need to meet these targets, to meet these objectives that come under, if you're talking about the well-being thing, the, the objectives? Mm-hmm. We do it backwards. Uh, so it's not about finding a way to do it. We have the way to do it. We're just not doing it properly. Okay, and I actually think it's very interesting because we're, we're, we we should be reverse engineering how they reverse engineered their, their results onto it. You know, yeah, like, it's, it's, I remember, we will famously say all the time that, do you remember the time Pascal Donoghue stood up and said Ireland had gotten a green rating for tax transparency and um, and it was and it was basically the, the admission, what wasn't said out loud was it was the only 
it was the most transparent tax haven in the world. But we had actually been given an amber rating and Ireland went back and appealed it. And we managed to get it upgraded to green. And that didn't get reported on either, folks, to be honest with you, because it's not as it's not as sexy as Ireland is Ireland is open for business. Um I do want to ask you uh, a question that we've been putting to a lot of uh, economists at the moment. There has been still um, recriminations falling, fa- coming back from Michael D's speech in terms of the uh, the challenges facing society and the economic model uh, uh, that that is that is not delivering, as we said at the outset of this podcast, and how modern economics is being taught. Uh, you clearly work in an area that's called social justice, social justice Ireland. So I don't think you're coming from the perspective of, you know, if these headline figures look great, everything else is great. But what was your takeaway from A, the, the speech and B, the blowback? I mean, you may be surprised to learn that I am actually a proponent of trickle-down economics, Tony. <laughs> uh, no, not even remotely. Um, I It trickles sideways and up. Man, unbelievably. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think... To kind of set aside the personalities of it, look at the evidence. We have become really, really, really bad as a country, uh, and particularly in the the you know the last number of years with the current government of actually basing our policies on evidence um, and looking at you know well what is it telling us? Where are we currently? Where do we want to go? And how do we actually get there based on what we know? And um, rather than well, I've, I kind of I've got vibes that it might look like this. But if you actually look at the evidence, we see very, very kind of traditional neoliberal economic thinking in all of our policies. So if you look at housing, for example, or actually any any policy area, it's all about privatization. That is neoliberal economic thought. That is the thing of if you, you know, if you privatize it, then those who deserve it will get it. There's no societal thinking in any of that. If you, we talked just now about the, you know, thousand euro credit. Mm. Um, again, reducing the state resources, and we need to actually increase the state resources. I know that there are these big, massive bumper bonuses and whatever else, but they are short term. We need to actually start looking at what the core budget is and providing for that properly. And we're not doing it if we're cutting taxes. But again, you cut taxes, you privatize services. What does that mean? The people who have the money can get the services that they can afford to get. And the people who don't, don't get anything. So the proof is in what the policies are giving us or not giving us and who they're not giving it to. Um, And that's where our economic thought is, or certainly that's where the dominant economic thought is in government policies. So taking aside, because I've already gotten sideswiped, taking aside all of the personalities, Hmm. it's it's actually what's the evidence saying to you? And the evidence is saying Michael D is 100% buy on the money. Yeah, and and I just I I I do know that obviously like we spoke to Constantine Gordiev about he how you know they teaching now in Colorado teaching economics and and talking about you know more maybe introducing other theories um, or talking about behavioral economics not just you know not just traditional economics and so there is obviously that academic argument that you know Michael D was basing on but we he was referring to the orthodoxy let's tell the truth and in the orthodoxy I mean, there is still the myth pervades in Irish media and uh, much economic commentary that austerity saved the country, you know, and we're, we're, we're yeah, still- and there's low, there's so much evidence to to mm. debunk that idea. But I mean, even just the fact that and it's again, like you're right, you know, there, there's a whole there's a whole school of economics that's mm. on environmental justice. That's ESG, on, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that there there is 
there's some really good economists and economic thinking and economic teaching that's out there and it's new and it's fresh and it's taken a whole of society approach and all of those things. But if you look at, and I, I think this is the direction that the president was going, if you look at the dominant economic narrative that is setting our policies for us, mm. it isn't that. It isn't the progressive narrative. It's, well, can, it's I, quite the opposite. I can give you a quote from the interview we did with Dara O'Brien the other day where I said to him, that his delivery model is completely, you know, wrong. He's 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 reliant entirely on the private sector, and it's actually co- it's cost ineffective. And he said, "What was it, Martin?" He said, "I'm not as pure as you are in how yeah. we how we get it done." And it's yeah. so funny. So so in other words, I was being a lefty purist, whereas the truth is, if he was really doing their jobs, they'd be concerned about how much money it's costing us per unit that we're delivering. hundred oh, percent. I also think that there's a, an element of it in the, it, Ireland is unique. We're not just neoliberalism, as we've said, we're neoliberalism. Yeah. You know, it's it's a non-drugs kind of neoliberalism. Yeah. Uh, and it really is. We really are that kind of tip of the spear, uh, you, you know, that really cutting edge of how bad can neoliberalism be? You've a country with a with a, a, a surplus of twenty six billion, and that's even before we we get the Apple tax money back. Really? It could be another ten million in on top of it, and yet we have some of the worst homelessness, housing lists, health in the EU. Now you can't balance, and we did say that to Dara too. We said that. He kept saying, oh, the EU, you know, everybody has problems with housing. Yes, but they're not the richest country in the goddamn EU sitting on 30 billion of a surplus. Can we, yeah, can I, I find that really interesting with the we're the best in the world in our productivity. And, you know, and, and we really kind of claim that. And then when it comes to what we're doing badly, well, everybody else is doing badly as well. You can't have both comparisons. They don't work. We can't can't have like, what is it? At one stage, if you you factored Apple, for example, per head of every single staff member that they employ was apparently as productive to the tune of like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars because this is the this was the this was the the basis if you took it on a head per head to the same apple That's employee right. in germany it just doesn't stack up really quickly because i'm conscious of time you have a pile of cash we have all this money uh they they are talking about another private idea is maybe get create what they're calling the sovereign wealth fund which is not a sovereign wealth fund but it will go into the market and do this so they'll go to the likes of uh, blackrock or one of these companies that are making money out of other people's misery by buying up properties across the globe and and say we'll get a return on that for ireland you're not in favor of that colette you you don't think we should be going down that road you think we should address some of the issues yeah yeah not so much um so the way we we would look at this is to separate out the core budget from the kind of bumper budget. So the core budget is what does it take to actually keep the show on the road? And are we collecting enough taxation? Do we, as the Commission on, on Taxation and Welfare have said, as the European Commission have said, as we ourselves have said, as plenty of others have said, need to broaden our tax base and increase our tax take? And then look at kind of almost ring fence that. And then with the, the kind of bumper money, the surplus money, to actually invest quite a lot of it. Yes, we do need some sort of a reserve. Absolutely. But I thought it was really, it was really interesting that um, I was on a, a, a program with a minister and he said, well, we need to keep this money for a crisis. I said, what crisis are you for? You know, as Martin said, we have 
record levels of homelessness. We have massive waiting lists for social housing, massive waiting lists for healthcare. We have kids who are so far behind developmentally in terms of psychological support. We have a migration crisis because we haven't handled it properly. This, you know, just take your pick. Um, so we need to start investing in that. But kind of rather than this privatized model where you're paying kind of constantly or cur- this current expenditure model, start investing capital in it, build the social housing, build the primary care units, you know, do the long term investment stuff while the money is there. And then at least it kind of keeps you in good stead when it's gone rather than having this kind of collection model of no, 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 we're going to create a wait, a wealth fund in case there's a crisis for some someone else. But there, there is actually a sovereign wealth fund and everybody passes it by all the time, never even looks at it. It's the PRSI fund. I mean, they, how many times have they raided it at this stage? Charlie McCreevy, and we mentioned Charlie, he absolutely raided it. They raided it again during uh, the beginning of austerity. The money that's going into, if they stopped raiding the bloody thing, it is your sovereign wealth fund. And now there's But Martin, stopping- you're, but, but like I want to be really clear on this. Some of the money we took from that was like three hundred million here, six hundred million there. We're talking about potentially gazillions. Okay. Well, I'm talking potentially thirty billion should be sitting in that right now, Tony. Right I'm, now, right this minute. Should be in. Well, you're talking again about the failure to collect PRSI as well. Which is what they've done That's, now. Mm, yeah, which is it yeah. which is yeah, so we so we have to it's it's this is a whole other podcast for all. But, but what I'm saying is that, like, as Colette says, we have the money to yep. spend. Now, what the government are doing is, is they're really renting a housing solution. They're renting housing solutions. And it's like we've always said, it's all dead money. Rent is dead money. So when your government is renting a housing solution, it's it's dead money that they're I, throwing away. It's crazy I know, stuff. I want to throw one curveball at you, um, uh, Colette, before we wrap. Much of the money that we're going to get is because of intellectual property rights being shifted to Ireland and it's, you know, and it's all a fudge. There's a, we're wonderful at this tax avoidance network. We really are. There's, we're, we're world leaders. It's going to move on, whether it moves on because some other, in tax competition, someone else takes advantage of it or the UN finally gets together and says, look, we'll have something, tax will be dealt with at the UN level as opposed to this. It'll have to move on at some stage. With the pile of money, some of it, I put it to you, we should actually be handing back to to developing countries and saying to them, put it, offset some of your car, some of your climate climate actions, or whether it's a COVID support fund or something. That that is, I I, I think we're we're as guilty as any other country in the world, and uh, it would be nice to to think that we could do something like that. Oh, that's not a curveball at all. Um, we're currently working on our pre-budget submission, and that is front and center. Um, what we are looking for is because, again, it is this we're just mad for playing with numbers. So, again, it's this thing of we have had a, a relatively good record with ODA mm. until you unpick it and you realize that we're also including our climate finance obligations in it. Two separate agreements made in two separate meetings, but the the money is, is being put in the same pot. What we want to see is the ODA, so that target. That so over, over overseas development aid, folks. Overseas just, development yeah, aid, yeah, apologies. Yeah. yeah. So we have a target to meet by 2030 to meet um, a level of of overseas development aid or ODA uh, that is 0.7 percent of our gross national income. We are currently 
when you include the two in and around 0.42%, when we take out the climate finance money, we're lower again, we're about 0.35-ish, right? So we're only halfway there. That agreement was made in 2015. We have, what, seven years left before we actually have to to really commit to that. Um, separate to that, then we have the the climate finance agreement that was made that there would be that UN countries would commit to a pot um, of a hundred billion for climate finance. Uh, again, uh, ODI did a report. The, the Overseas Development Institute did a report a couple of years ago. They do one every year, but the one a couple of years ago looked at who was paying their fair share. Shock horror. Ireland aren't. I think even if we met our target of 250, um, we'd only be making about 26% or 30%. So it's we need to look at that as well. And then separate to that, following on from COP27 last year, we need to start preparing for the contribution for the loss and damage fund. And how that was described to me was the likes of the kind of climate finance is for mitigation. It's for trying to prevent disaster caused by climate change. The ODA, the development aid is it'll get you a tent. Loss and damage should be rebuilding your house. It's reparations. So if ODA is 0.7% of your national income and climate finance is a contribution to 100 billion, the loss and damage fund is going to be huge. It is going to be large. There hasn't been discussion as of yet of what that's actually going to look like and how the contributions are going to be set um, but we need to be putting money aside to prepare to make our contribution, because as we know, global north countries are responsible for the vast majority of climate change and global south countries bear the vast majority of the brunt of it. So absolutely, that will be core to our budget asks is that we are making appropriate uh, allocations to overseas development. And as a bonus for the economists, um, it doesn't, it's, it, there's no inflationary impact because it's mm. going out of the country. Um, we also need to, again, unpick out of the ODA side of things, the money that we're spending on Ukrainian migrants here, because there has been some discussion that that would actually form part of our ODA target uh, because we're spending it here or spending it in a country. It's not overseas development aid, so it doesn't, it should not mm. be wrapped up into that. So that would certainly be part of our asks. More of our asks would be, and I'm sure it'll come as no surprise, an increase in social welfare. We're looking for €25 this year, uh, a week increase on core social welfare to make up for the cost of living and to start the benchmarking process. So the €10 just isn't going to wash that that hold around pensions. I think that's a good place to leave it. We've left it what the ask is. Thank you very much for coming on having this discussion with us. As always, a pleasure to talk with to talk with you. And as always, Social Justice Ireland, as you said, if you're not at the table, you are the menu. Thanks very much. Very much. Listen, folks, we've uh, we've lots more coming. Um, one of the other economists who is who is uh, working away in University of Limerick, Stephen Kinsler, will join us as well soon. So we, I love him. We will have a good dip into uh, into 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 Stephen's Stephen because what you don't know, folks, is really about Stephen is that we don't really talk much economics. He's he's into grunge music, so shall take our points. We'll talk to you all no, very, so very he's soon. He's a nice boy. He's yeah. a nice boy. He's just, he's just there are some nice economists out there. Ah, no. It's the ones that turn around and go, look, lads, you have it easy. Look at Rio. Yeah, They're the yeah. ones I dislike. Look, I got it. We got what it. What I find really disingenuous about some of them, and then I will go, uh, is the thing of, well, it's increasing affordability. Yeah. That doesn't make it affordable. 
and that's bullshit basically so stop that that myth has to go that myth absolutely has to go right we've we've lots coming talk to you soon folks take, take care. care thanks so much bye 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 Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Echo Chamber podcast subscribe now on Patreon